Welcome to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. We're back with more soil science. We'll get into the nitty-gritty of soil and find out what's in the soil and what to add to make plants grow. My guest is George Altgelt, who knows about soils. In fact, his company, GeoGrowers, makes soils, different formulations for different needs. Last time, we talked about the microorganisms in soil and how what we do when we amend soil is we are feeding those microorganisms, which in turn make nutrients available to our plants. We started talking about pH and how it is a critical factor. Two acid or two alkaline soils are a problem. Most plants like a neutral soil, which is around 7 on the pH scale. You may wonder how soil becomes too alkaline, so I put that question to George. Uh, in this area, and in, in like the Mediterranean area, this is, Texas is almost a, a, a total copy of, um, you know, Italy and Spain and right. northern coast of Africa with all the limestone. That is a very alkaline substance, and limestone is calcium carbonate. The calcium, which is very useful for plants to use to grow, right. uh, in the case of limestone, is bound to the carbonate with what's called a covalent bond. That means both sides are contributing to how sticky that bond is. Mm. And it's a powerful bond. And your vegetable plants can't excrete enough carbon dioxide to make enough carbonic acid to make enough freedom of calcium. Your vegetable plants can't. Trees, on the other hand, can, primarily because they're big enough and they have that kind of time. You're, you're so basically, you've got the nutrients in the soil, but because of this high level of, of uh, calcium carbonate? Right, calcium carbonate, which is very alkaline in its own. The plants can't get the nutrients right. they need. Right, right. And yeah. let's take a, a really um, pH-sensitive plant, blueberries. Many attempts yeah. have been made to grow blueberries in this part of the country. Right. And really, the only thing stopping it is alkaline soil. Right. And blueberries have to have 5.5. Uh, That's their ideal pH. And, you know, it's, it's like good luck getting 5.5 out of anything that's natural around here. Right. I've made those low pH soils. I had an, uh, a source of coffee grounds. Uh, coffee grounds, acid sand, peat moss, which mm -hmm. has, you know, 3.4 3 is the pH of peat moss. I've got an acid sand called ranch hand sand. It's 3.4. Wow. You throw in the coffee grounds, they're quite acid. I don't know what the pH is, but you can make a really good blueberry soil yeah. that'll actually grow blueberries. Uh, but, you know, this. But you have to keep it in a pot. You, or you, well, yeah, you contained. do. And, and uh, hopefully you're watering with rainwater. Yeah. Because these uh, municipal utility districts, uh, here and after referred to as MUDs, have an extremely high pH, yeah. meaning 8 is common, 8.2, mm -hmm. you know, 8.5. It's like, wow, how do they get at that alkaline? Well, they're pumping it out of the ground, yeah. and it's coming across limestone, right. and that's how it gets it. Is it the rock under the soil? Or? The, the rock. Um, there are rock powders that are quite acid. Right. Um, uh, uh, fresh ground granite can be quite acidic. Mm -hmm. 
Um, we're using um, the ranch hand sand, which is coming from someplace north of Marble Falls. That sand has a pH of 3.4. That's amazing that it could be that acidic. Yeah. And it does have a lot of sulfur in it, but it's not too much sulfur. And then there's um, peat moss, which is uh, another 3.4. Um, and uh, the peat moss, I understand, is sort of a limited source or something? Actually, uh, I checked into that because I kept hearing, oh, that's yeah. not sustainable. Right. But it turns out it's not true. Almost all peat moss is now being grown commercially okay. in big, broad, flat areas up in Canada. Uh -huh. And they're not robbing the peat bog anymore. I think right. that's probably, you know, the old days. Yeah. Now they're using big flat areas. Uh, we, you kind of talked about uh, nitrogen and sources. We talked about good sources of nitrogen, but kind of tell us again, what, what are those? What, first of all, what does nitrogen do for the plant? And what are some good organic sources? Yes. Um, the best nitrogen, if you're talking about agriculture, and we do want to get back to home gardening, but the best nitrogen is in the air and it costs you nothing. And you, you can get it into the soil with nitrogen-fixing bacteria. Anything that you inoculate, you know, uh, the soybeans are inoculated with nitrogen-fixing bacteria. That's how they grow those nodules. The yeah. nodules are loaded with uh, a nitrogen in the form of protein. Um, and then you've got uh, besides that, and that's a physical hmm. locking up of nitrogen, you have the so-called azotobacters. And what I didn't know a few years ago, I knew about azotobacter, but there are an array of microorganisms that do that very thing. And they're not all azotobacter. Well, what are they? Uh, azotobacter is a nitrogen-fixing bacterium. Uh -huh. It's a little bitty guy. Uh -huh. And they are concentrating gaseous nitrogen in their bodies and in their waste products. And it's a very stable form of nitrogen. And of course, the, the roots of plants love it. It's like, oh, hey, look what we found. And this, you know, the, the, uh, this is a free form of nitrogen. You can have that for your garden, uh, your pasture, for your you know, agricultural right. crop. It's, it's all there and... Uh, so this is the, you're talking about the, the powder that you coat the seed with before yes. you plant it? Yes, and then of course, azotobacter are naturally occurring. You wanna, you wanna keep lots of organic matter in the soil because it's not only breaking down into nitrogenous waste, what's there, but it's fixing new nitrogen right out of the atmosphere. And here's, an, here's a good reason why you want your soil to be fluffy, and I know it was one of your questions. Yeah. Air penetrates soil. How deep it penetrates is a function of how fluffy is that soil. Hmm. And how does it penetrate? How does the good air get in and the bad air come out? It's simple, with changes in barometric pressure. Hmm. And that is happening constantly. Within one day, there's all this change in barometric pressure. It may not be much, it may not be dramatic, but it is a change. Mm. So spent air is coming out when the pressure drops. Fresh air is being pushed in when the pressure becomes high. You ever open your uh, shampoo bottle and the stuff just comes oozing out into yeah. the palm of your hand? 
you're in a low pressure zone. All of a sudden, the pressure has changed. Right. right. That's that's one of the more obvious signs that right. barometric pressure is changing constantly. Right. So that's how soil breathes, always has. And you and the fluffier that soil is, the deeper it breathes. Right. And we all have this pretty good idea that it's a benefit to breathe deeply. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it also takes water in better, right? Yes, it and does. And gets it to the roots. Gets, gets it, it down to the to roots. roots. Okay, moving on to the P, phosphorus. What does phosphorus do for a plant, and what are some good organic sources? Um, phosphorus is responsible for root development. Uh, it's also necessary for uh, the microbial populations that depend on phosphorus. But in the tree, let's say you're going to grow peaches or plums, uh, fruit size is directly associated with phosphorus. Uh, phosphorus will either give you large fruits or a lack of it will give you small fruits. So your crop is very much dependent on available phosphorus. Also, how much fruit does that tree make? So what is, what is a good, for the home gardener, what's a good organic source of phosphorus? Um, there, that's going to be your rock phosphates. And then potassium, which is the K part of NPK. What is, uh, what, what does the plant get from potassium and for the home gardener, what are some good sources? Right, okay, potassium is also responsible for good root development. It's also a very large part of the plant's immune system. And I wish I had more chemistry to tell you about that. But here's an indication that um, your potassium levels are low. And they're usually not, not in this part of the country. But anytime fruit falls off of a tree or fruit falls off of your garden plants right. before it develops. Uh -huh. That's a lack of potassium. Uh -huh. And um, you're, you want to keep an eye out for that. Right. Um, too much potassium, on the other hand, is also a hazard because you don't want to eat uh, food that is too rich in potassium. Um, uh, there are health difficulties caused by potassium being too high in your produce. And that is why I don't recommend that you apply compost every year. Okay. You want to apply compost to the extent that your soil stays fluffy, um, in other words, maintains its loft. Right. But after that, you want to start monitoring how much uh, potassium is there because you can overdo it by using compost every year. Okay. So avoid that. And potassium is a mineral and it doesn't go away. The only thing that really takes the potassium out of that soil is cropping. The tomatoes, the squash, the right. cucumbers, all of that. Right. And if you're getting good crops, um, you're going to keep your potassium levels in check without having to resort to a lab. Okay. But don't put it in until you think you're going to, until you see signs that you need it. Right. But what, what are, if I wanted to add some, how would I add it? What, okay. what do I use? Um, we like to use and we recommend uh, the native Texas pink granite that is coming okay. from central Texas. The pink part of pink granite is potassium feldspar. And that potassium is available and becomes available through time. Mm -hmm. It's breaking down into the potassium feldspar. The, the bond is not hard to break. The potassium will become free and it's there for the plant to take up.
So this is, you would look for what granite dust? Is that what uh, well, not so much the dust. The sand is granite the sand. sand will suffice. Okay. And I sell three kinds of granite sand plus uh, the you know the decomposed granite. Um, and I don't recommend that you put decomposed granite in your garden. Go with the sands. One, they're easier to spread, but also there's less potassium. If you use the, the decomposed granite, it's also called granite gravel. Nowadays it's called inch minus. It's too high in potassium. You, you want to go with the so granite sands. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm here with George Altgelt, and we're talking about soil. But right now, it's time for a break. We're back now. This is Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here with George Altgelt and we're talking about soil. Now, we haven't talked about cover crops, although uh, when you were talking about um, the nitrogen-fixing nodules made me think of cover crops, because I know a lot of them, when you pull them up, have, the no have those nodules right. on them. And the other thing I've noticed is that blue bonnets, when you pull them up, will have those same nodules. Yes. So they, they're sort of a legume. Of they are a legume. Yeah. Uh, but talk about cover crops. What, why do we? Why should we even think about planting those? Sure. Um, uh, in a garden, um, you can actually uh, build the nitrogen with the legumes. And if you had, let's say, sweet peas there last year, move to a different spot because the nitrogen levels can be high enough to actually stifle the development of beans and peas. Mm. Uh, you want so you get lots of green, but no fruit. lots of green, but no you know no nodules and no fruit set. Uh, you know the fruits won't make not until the nodules start to develop, and that takes a low nitrogen soil. So beans and peas are excellent for last year's soil that you mined out from the nitrogen. Um, and then of course you know if you had beans and peas on it, plant your tomatoes there, and you always want to rotate where tomatoes grow because there's. Uh, viral components that will, you know, have a right. much better chance to get into your tomatoes if you're growing tomatoes on the same ground year after year. Can you talk about what is a cover crop? Why would we use it? Um, yes, I can. You you don't really get seriously into cover crops unless your your gardening is so large that you're doing truck farming or truck yeah. gardening. Okay. Um, but it's a great way to um, enhance the soil biology and what a lot of cover crops do is they send roots down into the soil strata that of course has its components of soil microbes and then that soil is enriched with carbon uh, the polysaccharides and lignans and then um, you know all those microbial populations right. and um, that's what builds soil and now we're talking at this point about soil horizons, and we're going to get into uh, do you disturb the soil by tilling or not? Yeah. And uh, there are two camps, and they're not divided by any great controversy, uh, but there's a lot to be said for simply when you harvest your broccoli, cut the broccoli off at the ground and leave the roots. 
uh, because those will rot and decay and enhance the soil life. Right. Um, th but there's times when you can't do that. Uh, in not too long ago, people were planting uh, rye grass in their gardens. I made the mistake of planting Elbon rye. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's like, okay, this is rye. We want rye grass in the wintertime. So I planted it. Little did I know it was going to grow three feet high, and you couldn't do anything with it. Oh. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, finally I wound up mowing it. Yeah. And then, you know, the summer killed it because it's too hot and you don't have that kind of water anyway. Right. Uh, but that's the last time I did Elbon rye because um, it's, you know, it, it's a nightmare to deal with. Right. You know, it, it wants to be there and it starts making seed heads and all right. this stuff and it's like, wait a minute, this is supposed to be a garden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I did something similar with, uh, oh gosh, what is it? a hairy vetch. Yes. <clears throat> it's now, all over the garden now. <laughs> right, right. It's and everywhere. it's a legume. It's supposed to be a cover crop. I know. It's like, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope it's developing something good out there. Oh, it will, without a doubt. And when you, when you finally win, and you can, uh, you're going to have a great garden there. Yeah. Um, okay, so what happens to the soil? Uh, you know, we've talked mainly about organics, organic methods and materials for soil, but what happens when you use uh, pesticides and herbicides? I'm talking about artificial or synthetic stuff. Right. Not uh, conventional, sorry. Right, There's conventional. There's so many terms. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, conventional is pretty artificial. Uh, I, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of history. Um, in World War I, uh, the Germans were quickly running out of ways to feed themselves and uh, someone discovered, either accidentally or somehow deliberately, that if you took the nitrate explosives and spread them out on the soil, um, your crop would grow like crazy. And it, and it did, and it prolonged the war for about another three years because all of a sudden the Germans had this fantastic amount of grain they were producing. And you know, no one thought that was possible. Well, that's when nitrates were discovered from explosives. Mm. Um, and then comes, you know, to World War II, uh, we, had, we weren't really using nitrates so much until World War II, and then we got uh, this huge boost in production from using the nitrate fertilizers. Right. Uh, and then after World War II, we just kept up the practice, and the reason it was so successful is because at that point, our arable land was still loaded with carbon. It, it still had all forms of carbon, including lignans and polysaccharides, and the nitrates were fantastic in terms of production, but that began to drop, and it dropped at the same rate we used up the carbon in the soil. And that wasn't even discovered uh, till William Albrecht came along and made a real point to say, uh, you know, you need carbon. And here's what happened to William Albrecht, uh, dean of the School of Agronomy at the University of Missouri. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that was a land-grant college, and they were getting a lot of money from the fertilizer industry, which was taking off at that point. So Albrecht gets called up on the carpet by the president of the school, who asks, humbly or not, Hey, William, could you tone it down a bit? The fertilizer companies are getting on my case here. I think you're making them nervous. Yeah. 
And so Albrecht says, so what I've studied all my life, how the Creator intended for soil to be, and you want me to say it isn't so. Well, I'm not going to do that. So he was forced into early retirement, wow. and they took all of his books off the shelves. Really? The Albrecht papers. Brilliantly preserved by a small newspaper called Acres USA. Oh, yeah. Which I highly recommend. Oh, I know Everyone, Acres, yeah. Oh, you know it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, everyone should be reading Acres USA. Yeah. Because you're going to get news there that no other news outlet will provide you with. Mm. Wow. Powerful stuff. So, anyway, anyway. so the, but yeah, but going back to the, to what it does to the soil. So basically, it's it's taking out the plants are taking out the taking up the nitrates and the carbon. But at some point, it's totally depleted. It's Once you deplete the soil. carbon, you deplete the soil life, and there yeah. goes the drop in absorption of trace minerals because it's the soil microbial life that's doing the job of transporting trace minerals into the plant. That's where the plant has its, that's its source of being able to be robust, yeah. to defend itself. With that gone, more and more toxic chemical chemistry is having to be used to rescue that crop, which is basically unfit to survive. And we're propping it up with, you know, this and that pesticide or this and that herbicide. Soil that is really, really low in fertility is perfect for weeds. Because again, as Charles Walters used to say, uh, weeds are the creator's way of making soil fertile again. And I'll give you one small example, dandelions. And I stopped watching TV in 1989, but I was seeing this commercial over and over. This family's going on vacation, and the dad is absolutely obsessed with killing the dandelions oh. in his front yard. Yeah. He's got this squirt bottle of glyphosate, and he's hitting the dandelions as they drive to the airport so they can go on vacation. Okay, well, besides contaminating the cab and the family and all of that with glyphosate, uh, you are killing a dandelion, which, by the way, is not really a noxious weed. Right. But what dandelions do is they get into soil. They do well in soil that has very little available calcium. Huh? And they grow, and they leave behind a root that is loaded with available calcium so that in time, that soil becomes fertile with usable, available calcium probably the number one fertility ingredient in any fertility profile is calcium. So by killing the dandelions, you've stopped this whole cycle of making that into really good soil. And then, you know, meanwhile, the whole lawn is toxic, and so, are, you know, the kids right. are absorbing it in their bare feet and who knows what all else. Right. But um, that is an example of how nature brings soil back up to full fertility. And, of course, you know, if you, wanted, if you want the whole picture, or a lot of it, there's a book called Weeds, Control Without Poisons mm. by Charles Walters. Yeah. And it's about all of that. Right. And w when you see this or that weed, you know something's deficient. And in this book is a description of what's deficient. You want to make sure that weed's not hindrance to your crop, supply the mineral that it's there to correct, and you won't see that weed. Excellent. Okay, um, 
so yeah, we're we're losing we're losing a lot of of you know biological diversity and robustness because of the dependence on chemicals. Right. And and basically, what they're doing, as I understand it, but you can tell me, is what's happening when you use pest, uh, pesticides, herbicides, and artificial fertilizer, is it's affecting the microorganisms in the soil. Yes, it is. Uh, your your the salt fertilizers. When that salt is on the outside of a single-celled microorganism, the moisture in the body of that little creature desiccates. The, mi the moisture migrates towards the salt. Mm -hmm. It can't help it. And it burns them to death. It's basically taking all the moisture out of their body and they die. So you're killing your soil. You're killing your soil. I ended my conversation with George Altgelt talking about Rudolf Steiner's vision of the human connection with nature and our environment and about keeping the delicate balance between the human-created world and the natural world. What I know for a fact is we're all moving back to that balance right now. Mm -hmm. You can see it in um, the fact that people's hearts are opening everywhere and those people whose hearts are opening are enhancing the vibratory power of everything around them, including other people's hearts. I mean, I really see that and I yeah. feel it. Here's wishing you a world in balance. I hope you've enjoyed our program. Thanks so much for listening. And please come back for more Sustainable Living News on Mothering Earth with me, Salwa Khan. Thank mm -hmm. you.